Welcome. Christina here. Merry Christmas. Feliz Navidad. Or happy holidays if that's not what you celebrate. That's okay because today we have a very special special for you. So gather your cafecito, your chocolatito, your pan, your coquito, whatever your beverage of choice is. Grab it, grab your pan, whatever treat you're eating, have a seat, and gather around the fireplace to enjoy these spooky stories. This is Dos Pequeños. A funnier look at the paranormal in New Mexico, the world, and beyond. I'm your co-ghost, Alex. And I'm Eric. I'm going to take you through the first part of this story. It is called Dark Christmas by Jeanette Winterson. We had borrowed the house from a friend none of us seemed to know. High Fallen House stood on an eminence overlooking the sea. It was a square Victorian gentleman's residence. The large bay windows looked down through the pines towards the shore. Six stone steps led the visitor up the double front door where a gothic bell pool released a loud mournful clang deep in the distances of the house. Laurel lined the drive. The stable block was disused. The walled garden had been locked up in 1914 when the gardeners went to war. Only one had returned. I had been warned that the high brick wall enclosing the garden was unsafe. As I passed it slowly in the car, I saw a faded notice falling off the paint-peeled door. Do not enter. <laughs> Don't you do it. How dare you. I was the first to arrive. My friends were following by train and I was to collect them the next day and then we would settle down to Christmas. I had driven from Bristol and I was tired. There was a Christmas tree roped on the top of my 4x4 and a truckload of provisions. We were not near any town, but the housekeeper had left stacked wood to build a fire and I had brought a shepherd's pie and a bottle of Rioja from my first night. What is bottle Rioja? It's a red wine. Oh. I think it's the Spanish wine. Okay. The kitchen was cheerful enough once I had got the fire going and the radio playing while I unpacked our festive supplies. I checked my phone. No signal. Still, I knew the time of the train tomorrow, and it was a relief to feel that the world had gone away. I put my food in the oven to heat up, poured a glass of wine, and went upstairs to find myself a bedroom. The first landing had three bedrooms leading off it. Each had a moth-eaten rug, a metal bed, and a mahogany chest of drawers. At the far end of the landing was a second set of stairs up to the attic floor. I am not romantic about maids' rooms or nurseries, and there was something about that second set of stairs that made me hesitate. The landing was bright in the sudden way of late sun on a winter's afternoon, yet the light ended abruptly at the foot of the stairs as though it couldn't go any further. I didn't want to be near this set of stairs, so I chose the room at the front of the house. As I went to bring up my bag, the house bell started to ring, its jerky metallic hammer sounding somewhere in the guts of the house. I was surprised but not alarmed. I expected the housekeeper. I opened the door, and there was no one there. I went down the steps and looked around. I admit I was frightened. The night was clear and soundless. There was no car in the distance, no footsteps walking away. Determined to conquer my fear, I walked round a little. Then, turning back to the house, I saw it. The bell wire ran along the side of the house under a sheltering gutter. Perhaps thirty or forty bats were dangling upside down on the vibrating wire. The same numbers swooped and swerved in a dark mass. Obviously, their movement on the wire had set off the bell. I like bats clever bats. I ate, I drank, I wondered why love is so hard and life is so short. <laughs> I went to bed. The room was warmer now and I was ready to sleep. The sound of the sea ebbed into the flow of my dreams. I woke from a dead sleep in the dead darkness to hear what? What can I hear? Jingle bells? It sounded like a ball bearing or a marble rolling on the bare floor above my head. It rolled hard on hard, then hit the wall. Then it rolled again in the other direction. This might not have mattered except that the other direction was upwards. Things can come loose and roll downwards, but they cannot come loose and roll up unless someone... That thought was so unwelcome that I dismissed it along with the law of gravity. Whatever was rolling over my head must be a natural dislodging. The house was drafty and unused. The attics were under the eaves where any kind of weather might get in. Weather or an animal. Remember the bats? Mm -hmm. I pulled the covers up to my eyebrows and pretended not to listen. There it was again, hard on hard, on hit, on pause, on roll. I waited for sleep, waiting for daylight. We are lucky, even the worst of us, because daylight comes. It was a brooding day that 21st of December, the shortest day of the year. Coffee, coat on, car keys, shouldn't I just check the attic? The second set of stairs was narrow, a servant's staircase. It led to a lath and plaster corridor, barely a shoulder width wide. I started coughing. 
Breathing was difficult. Damp had dropped from the plaster in thick, crumbling heaps on the floorboards. As below, there were three doors. Two were closed. The door to my room, above my room, was ajar. I made myself go forward. The room was under the eaves as I had guessed. The floor was rough. There was no bed, only a washstand and a clothes rail. What surprised me was the nativity scene in the corner. Standing about two feet tall, it was more like a doll's house than a Christmas decoration. Inside the open-fronted stable stood the animals, the shepherds, the crib, and Joseph. Above the roof, a bit of wire, was a battered star. It was old, handmade in a workmanlike but not craftsmanlike sort of way. The painted wood now rubbed and faded like pigments of time. I thought I would carry it downstairs and put it by our Christmas tree. It must have been made for the children when there were children here. I stuffed my pockets with the figures and animals and left quickly, leaving the door open. I had to set off for the station. Stephen and Susie could help me with the rest later. As soon as I was out of the house, my lungs felt clear again. It must be the plaster dust. The drive to the station was along the coast road, lonely and unyielding. The road turned in a series of blind bends and tight corners. I met no one and I saw no one. Gulls circled over the sea. The station itself was a simple shelter on a long, single track. There were no information boards. I checked my phone. No signal. At last, the train appeared distantly down the track. I was excited. Memories of visiting my father as a child when he was stationed at his RAF base give me a rush of pleasure whenever I travel by train or come to meet one. The train slowed and halted. The guard stood down for a moment. I watched the doors. It wasn't a big train. This branch line train, but none of the doors opened. I waved at the guard who came over. I am meeting my friends. He shook his head. Train's empty. Next stop is the end of the line. I was confused. Had they got off at the earlier stop? I described them. The guard shook his head again. I noticed strangers. They would have boarded at Carlisle. Asked me where to get off. Always do. Is there another train before tomorrow? One a day and that's your lot. And more than anybody needs in a place like this. Where are you staying? Hi, Fallen House. Do you know it? Oh, aye. We all know it. <laughs> he looked as if he were about to say something else. Instead, he blew his whistle. The empty train pulled away, leaving me staring down the long track, watching the red light like a warning. I needed to get a signal on my phone. I drove on past the station, following the steep hill, hoping that some height would connect me to the rest of the world. At the top of the hill, I stopped the car and got out, pulling up my collar of my coat. The first snow hit my face with insect insistence, sharp and spiteful like little bites. I looked out across the whitening bay. That must be High Fallen House. But what's that? Two figures walking on the beach? Is it Stephen and Susie? Had they driven here after all? Then as I strained my eyes against the deceit of distance, I realized that the second figure was much smaller than the first. They were walking purposefully towards the house. When I arrived back, it was nearly dark. I put on the lights, blew the, the fire into the blaze. There was no sign of the mysterious couple I had seen from the hill. Perhaps it had been the housekeeper and her daughter come to make sure everything was all right. I had a telephone for Mrs. Wormwood, but without a signal, I could not call her. The snow was thickening in windy swirls. Relax. Have a whiskey. I leaned on the warm kitchen range with my whiskey in my hand. The wooden figures I had brought down from the attic were lying on the kitchen table. I should go up and get the stable. I don't want to. I bounded up the first set of stairs using energy to force out unease. At my bedroom, I put on the light. That felt better. The second set of stairs stood in the shadow at the end of the long landing. I felt that constriction in my lungs again. Why am I holding onto the handrail like an old man? I could see the only light to the attic was at the top of the stairs. I found the round brown bake light switch. I flicked down the nipple. Yeah, you did. A single bulb lit up reluctantly. The room was straight ahead. The door was closed. Hadn't I left it open? <laughs> I turned the handle and stood in the doorway, the room dimly lit by the light from the stairs. Washstand, nativity, clothes rail. On the clothes rail was a child's dress. I hadn't noticed that before. I suppose I had been in a hurry. Pushing aside my misgivings, I went in purposefully and bent down to pick up the wooden nativity. It was heavy and I had just got it secure in my arms when the light on the landing went out. Hello? Who's there? There's someone breathing like they can barely breathe, not faint, struggling for breath. I mustn't turn around because whoever or whatever it is, is behind me. I stood still for a minute, steadying my nerve. Then I shuffled forwards towards the edge of light coming up from downstairs. At the doorway, I heard a step behind me, lost my balance and put out a hand to steady myself. My hand gripped something wet, <laughs> the clothes rail. It must be the dress. My heart was overbeating. Don't panic, bake light, bad wiring. <laughs> Strange house, darkness, aloneness. But you're not alone, are you? Back in the kitchen with whiskey, radio <laughs> four and pasta boiling, I examined the dress. It was for a small child and it was hand knitted. 
The wool was smelly and sopping. I washed it out and left it hanging over the sink to drip. I guess there must be a hole in the roof and the dress has been soaking up the rain for a long time. I ate my supper, tried to read, told myself it had been nothing, nothing at all. It was only 8 p.m. I didn't want to go to bed, though the snow outside was like a quilt. I decided to arrange the nativity, the donkey, the sheep, camels, wise men, shepherds, star, Joseph. The crib was there, but it was empty. There was no Christ child. That's blasphemy. And there was no Mary. Hold the phone. And I dropped them in the dark room. I hadn't heard anything fall, and these wooden figures were six inches tall. Joseph was wearing a woolen tunic, but his wooden legs had painted pooties. <laughs> I pulled off the tunic. Underneath, whoa, bro. Whoa, underneath, wooden Joseph wore a painted uniform. First World War. When I turned him around, I saw there was a gash in his back like a stab wound. Whoa. My phone beeped. I dropped Joseph, grabbed the phone. It was a text message from Susie. Trying to call you. Leave tomorrow. I pressed call. Nothing. I tried to send a text. Nothing. But what did it matter? Suddenly I felt relief and calm. And there had been delayed and that was all. Tomorrow they would be here. I sat down again with the nativity. Perhaps the missing figures were inside. And I put in my hand. My fingers closed around a metal object. It was a small iron key with a hoop top. Maybe it was the key to the attic door. Outside, snow had fallen, snow on snow. The sky had cleared and the moon sped above the sea. I had gone to bed and I was deep asleep when I heard it clearly. Above me, footsteps, pacing, down the room, hesitate, turn, return. I lay in bed, eyes staring blindly at the ceiling. Why do we open our eyes when we can't see anything? And what was there to see? I don't believe in ghosts. I wanted to put on the light, but what if the light didn't come on? Why would it be worse to be in the darkness I had not had not chosen than darkness I was choosing? But it would be worse. I sat up in bed and pulled back the curtain a little. The moon had been so bright tonight. Surely there would be light. There was light. Outside the house, hand in hand, stood the still and silent figures of a mother and child. I did not sleep again till daylight, and when I slept and woke again, it was almost midday and already the light was lowering. Hurrying to get coffee, I saw that the dress was gone. I had left it dripping over the sink, and it was gone. Get out of the house. I set off for the station. There was an air frost that had coated the trees in glittering white. It was beautiful and deathly. <laughs> the world held in ice. On the roads, there was no car tracks, no noise but the roar and the drop of the sea. I moved slowly and saw no one. In the white, unmoving landscape, I wondered if there was anyone else left alive. At the station, I waited. I waited some time past the time until the train whistled on the track. The train stopped. The guard got down and saw me, and he shook his head. There's no one, he said. No one at all. I thought I would cry. I took out my mute phone, and I flashed up the message, trying to call you, leave tomorrow. The guard looked at it. Happen it's you who should be leaving, he said. There's no more trains past Carlisle till the 27th. Tomorrow was the last, and that's been canceled. Weather. I wrote down the number and gave it to the guard. Will you phone my friends and tell them that I am on my way home? On the slow journey back to High Fallen House, I filled my mind with my departure. It would be slow and dangerous to travel at night, but I could not consider another night alone or not alone. All I had to do was manage 40 miles to Inch Barn. There was a pub and guest house in remote but normal life. The text messages kept playing in my head. Had it really meant that I should leave? And why? Because Susie and Steven couldn't come? Weather? Illness? It's all a guessing game. The fact is, I have to go. The house seemed uh, subdued when I returned. I left the lights on and went straight upstairs to pack my bag. At once, I saw that the light in the attic was on. I paused. Breathed. Of course it's on. I never switched it off, dummy. That proves it's wiring fault. I must tell the housekeeper. My bag packed, I threw the food into the box and put everything back into the car. I had the whiskey in the front because whiskey, a blanket I stole from the bed, and I made a hot water bottle just in case. It was only five o'clock. It was only five o'clock. At worst, I'd be an inch barn by 9 p.m. I got in the car and turned the key. The radio came on for a second, died, and then the ignition clicked and clicked. I knew that the battery was flat. Two hours ago at the station, the car had started first time. Even if I had left the lights on, 
but I hadn't let the lights on. A cold panic hit me, so I took a swig of whiskey. I couldn't sleep in the car all night. I would die, and I don't want to die. Back in the house, I wondered what I was going to do all night. I must not fall asleep. I had noticed some old books and volumes when I had explored downstairs yesterday, assorted dusty adventure stories and tales of empire, and as I sorted through them, I came across a faded velvet photograph album, and in the cold, deserted sitting room, I began to discover the past. High Fallen House, 1910. The women in long skirts with miraculous waist, the men in shooting tweeds, the stable boys in waistcoats, the gardening boys wearing flat caps, the maids in starched aprons, and here they are again in their Sunday best, a wedding photograph, Joseph and Mary Locke, hmm. 1912, he was a gardener, she was a maid, and in the back of the album, loose and unsorted, were further photographs and newspaper cuttings, 1914, the men in uniform, there was Joseph. I took the album back into the kitchen and put it next to my wooden soldier. I had on my coat and scarf. I propped myself up in two chairs by the wood-fired range and dozed and waited and waited and dozed. It was perhaps two o'clock when I heard a child crying. Not a child who had scraped his knee or lost toy, but an abandoned child. A child whose own voice in his last hold on life. A child who cries and knows that no one will come. The sound was not above me. It was above the above me. <laughs> I knew where it was coming from. I put my hands over my ears and my head between my knees, and I could not shut out the sound. A locked up child, a hungry child, a child who was cold and wet and frightened. Twice I got up and went to the door. Twice I sat down again. The crying stopped. Silence. Dreadful silence. I raised my head. Footsteps were coming down the stairs, not one foot in front of the other, but one foot dragging slightly, and then the other joining it. Steadying, stepping again, and at the bottom of the stairs the footsteps paused. Then they did what I knew they would do with all the terror in my body. The footsteps came towards the kitchen door, and whatever was out there was standing 12 feet on the other side of the door. Mm. <laughs> I stood behind the table and picked up a knife because that's can't kill a ghost bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I would probably. Yeah, you gotta <clears throat> get what you got. Instinct, fight or flight. Mm -hmm. The door swung open with a violent force that rammed the brass doorknob into the plaster of the wall. Wind and snow blew into the kitchen, whirling up the photographs and cuttings on the table. I saw that the front door itself was wide open, the entrance hall like a wind tunnel. Holding the knife, I went forward into the hall to shut the door. The pendant metal lantern that hung from the ceiling was swinging wildly on its long chain. A sudden gust lurched it forward like a child's swing pushed too high. It fell back at force against the large semicircular fanlight over the front door. The fanlight shattered and fell around my shoulders in shards of sharp rain. Flicker. Buzz. Darkness. The house lights were out. No wind now. No cries. And silence again. Glass hit into the snow-lit hall and I walked out to the front door and into the night. At the drive, I turned left and saw them. The mother and child. The child was wearing the woolen dress and she had no shoes. And she held up her arms piteously to her mother who had stood like a stone. I ran forward and I grabbed the child in my arms. There was no child. I had fallen face down in the snow. Help me. That's not my voice. I'm on my feet again. The mother is ahead of me and I follow her. She's going towards the walled garden. She seems to pass through the door leaving me on the other side. Do not enter. I tried the rusty hoop handle, and it broke off, taking a piece of the door with it. I kicked the door open, and it fell off its hinges. The ruined and abandoned garden lay before me. A walled garden of one acre used to feed 20 people. But that was a long time ago. There were footprints in the snow. I followed them. They led me to the bothy, its roof patched with corrugated iron. And there was no door, but the inside seemed dry and sound. And there was a tear off calendar still on the wall. 22nd of December, 1916. I put my hand in my pocket and I realized that the key from the nativity was there. And at the same time, I heard a chair scrape on the floor in the room beyond. And I had no fear anymore. As the body first shivers and then numbs with cold, my feelings were frozen. I was moving through the shadows as one who dreams. In the room beyond, there was a low fire lit in a tiny tin fireplace. On either side, there was fire, sat a mother and child. The child was absorbed, playing with a marble. Her bare feet were blue, but she did not seem to feel the cold any more than I did. Are we dead then? The woman with the shawl over her head looked at me with deep expressionless eyes. I recognized her. It was Mary Locke. She nodded at me. 
for at not me, at some other me, in some other time, I do not know. Her gaze went to the tall cupboard. I knew that my key fitted the cupboard, and this I must open it, and I did so. And a dusty uniform fell out, crumpling like a puppet. The uniform was not quite empty of its occupant. The back of the faded wool jacket had a long slash where the lungs would have been. I looked at the knife in my hand. Open the door. Are you in there? Open the door. I woke to blinding light. Where am I? Something's rocking. It's the car. I'm in my car. A heavy glove was brushing off the snow, and I sat up, found my keys, and pressed the unlock button. It was morning. Outside was the guard from the train and the woman who announced herself as Miss Wormwood. Fine mess you've made here, she said. We went into the kitchen and I was shivering so much that Miss Wormwood relented and began to make coffee. Alfie fetched me, she said, after he spoke to your friends. There's a body, I said, in the walled garden. Is that where it is? said Miss Wormwood. At Christmas 1914, Joe Fuslock had gone to war, and before he had left for Flanders, <laughs> he made he had made a nativity scene for his little girl. Ukulele. <laughs> when he came back in 1916, he had been gassed. They heard him climbing the stairs, gasping for breath through froth corrupted lungs. His mind had gone, they said. And a night in the attic where he slept with his wife and child, he leaned vacantly against the wall, rolling the child's marbles up and down, down and up, pacing pacing and pacing. One night just before Christmas, he strangled his wife and daughter. He left them for dead in the bed and went out, but his wife was not dead. She followed him, and in the morning they found her sitting by the nativity, her dress dark with blood, his finger marks livid on her throat. She was singing a lullaby and pushing, pointed the knife into her back of the wooden figure. Joseph was never found. Are you going to call the police? I said. What for? said Miss Wormwood. Let the dead bury the dead. Alfie the guard went out to see my car. It started first time. The exhaust blew in the white air. I left them clearing up and was about to set off when I remembered I had left my radio in the kitchen. I went back inside. The kitchen was empty. I could hear the two of them up in the attic, and I picked up the radio. The nativity was on the table as I had left it, but it wasn't as I had left it. Joseph was there, and the animals and the shepherds and the worn-out star and in the center was the crib. Next to the crib were the wooden figures of a mother and child. Wow, what a story. That was Eric and Alex from Dos Spookueños Podcast. You can find links to their podcast in the show notes. I'm going to go refill my cafecito, get comfy, and listen to this next story from Lainey from the podcast It's Haunted, What Now? Our next story comes from I Hate Pinewood. They've also got a childhood story to share, but this time, we're cranking things up to the next level with a twist ending that will have you laying awake tonight for sure. When I was 10 years old, my grandfather passed away leaving the old family home to my mother. It was an old Victorian house that has been in our family for over a hundred years. Behind the house was a plot of land that was mostly a forest full of trees. Now, at 10 years old, I had a huge imagination. I decided this forest would be a great place to go exploring. As I was out there, I ran into another little girl. Politely, I said hi to her and asked her her name and where she lived. She told me her name was Kay and that her house was close. It made me happy to have another kid my age to play with, and so that's exactly what we did. For an entire year, Kay and I were best friends. We played together after school and on weekends. The only issue we ever had was that Kay only ever wanted to play in the forest. She never wanted to go anywhere else. But since I was just happy to have a friend, I didn't question it. Besides... I liked playing in the forest. Unfortunately, my other grandfather got sick around that time. He was given less than a year to live, and our family moved back to be with him for his final days. When he finally passed over, over a year longer than the time he'd been given, my family eventually moved back home. After we came back, Kay never came over. Days and weeks went by, then months. Still, no Kay. 
Eventually, I moved on and figured that she'd also moved away while we'd been gone. It wasn't until 15 years later that I figured out who Kay really was. My parents had decided to move into a retirement community, and they left the house to my fiancé and I. About a week after moving in, I was going through some old family photos. There, in a photograph, was my mother as a girl, my grandparents, and another little girl, Kay. It was absolutely Kay in that photograph. I was sure of it. And I was completely freaked out. I took the photo to my mother, demanding an explanation, but not telling her that the girl in the photo looked identical to my childhood best friend. My mother sighed and told me that she'd never wanted me to know. That our family had a bit of a dark past. She told me that the little girl in the photo was Catherine, my mother's sister who went missing when she was 10. No sign of her had ever been found, even 40 years later. Lore within our family said that they suspected another family member, who later completed suicide, was the one at fault for Catherine's disappearance. This messed me up for a long time. I tried my best, though, to move on. Unfortunately, wildfires would eventually destroy most of the forested area in our backyard, a while after I'd spoken to my mother about the photograph. Thankfully, our house had minimum damages, but the forest was burned beyond repair. We decided to clear out the land and made a terrifying discovery. While digging up one of the tree trunks, one of the construction workers found bones, human bones. We called the police and an investigation was opened. It was determined that the remains belonged to Catherine. She had died apparently not long after she'd gone missing. Now, all I can do is wonder, is this why Kay only wanted to play in the trees? Could she not leave? Or did she want me to find her body? And if so, why did she never tell me? The week before Christmas, after my grandpa died, I stayed the night with my grandma after we'd gone Christmas shopping. My grandma was still taking my grandpa's passing hard, and I'd been trying to help cheer her up. We'd just gone out to do more shopping for wrapping materials and to McDonald's to grab some takeout for lunch. When we got home, we ate and watched Christmas movies until my mom was due to come and pick me up. I guess all that shopping wore her out because halfway through the movie, my grandma fell asleep. Sitting there with her, I started to think about my grandpa. We'd been really close and his passing had hit me hard, but I was trying to be strong when I was around my grandma. I missed him a lot and I actually didn't want to stay over at my grandma's as much as I used to. Being there brought up all these memories of grandpa and just made me miss him more. I never even went into his bedroom anymore because it made me too sad. While my grandma slept, I tried to pay attention to the movie but all I could think of was my grandpa and all the fun things we'd usually do for Christmas and how I just wanted to see him again. Suddenly, the room started to feel cold. At first, I thought it was just a draft, but everything started to feel heavy and very quiet. The clock stopped ticking and there were no car noises from outside. It just felt like the world had stopped and that all the color had faded away until Everything seemed to be gray. My whole body broke out in pinpricks, and it felt like someone was watching me. When I looked up, I nearly screamed in shock. There in the doorway that led into the hall was my grandpa. He was just standing there smiling at me, wearing his favorite cream and brown pinstripes short sleeve button-up shirt, blue jeans, brown belt, white socks, brown loafers, and brown glasses. The only thing different was that there was this kind of glow around him. I sat there frozen for what seemed like an hour before I started to stand up. I don't know why. Maybe to hug him or maybe just to touch him and see if he was actually there. I don't know. But the second I got to my feet, he was gone. The world went back to normal with all its regular sounds and color, 
like someone had just hit the unpause button on the universe. I stood there in shock for a second before I realized I was crying and went to get a tissue. An hour later, my mom came and picked me up. She and my grandma talked for a bit, but I stayed quiet, debating on whether or not to tell them what had happened. I decided not to say anything to my grandma just yet, but on the car ride home, my mom noticed I was nervous about something, and I ended up telling her everything. My mom was so shocked, she had to pull the car over. She asked me like a million questions, mostly if I was positive about what I saw, and each time I told her, yes, I was. I described the whole thing to her over and over. I started to cry, and she hugged me to calm me down, starting to cry herself. When we calmed down, she told me that it was going to be okay, but that I should never tell my grandma what I saw. After that, I still visited my grandma, but... I no longer went by myself and I never stayed overnight again. The weirdest part of it all was that even though I was freaked out, part of me wanted to see him again. Ooh, I have chills. I don't know if it was the story or because it's December and I need to turn my heat up. I don't know. I'm going to grab chocolate and you listen to this next story. I think you might recognize it. This is usually a jolly time for Americans in the United States. It means Santa and presents. For many in Latin America, it's time for El Niño Jesús, Little Baby Jesus. And though it is a time for happiness, there's always room for something spooky. The following tale of terror is a legend told in many towns in Mexico. It is known as El Mendigo de la Navidad, the Christmas beggar. It was the 25th of December in a small pueblo in Mexico. Most families were enjoying El Recalentado, the reheating of dinner from Nochebuena, Christmas Eve. With a good cup of coffee or hot chocolate in hand, They stayed away from the cold weather except for one person. Outside, there was an older man. The winter streets were empty except for him. He was dressed in rather old and tattered clothing. Clothing that was clearly not winterproof. The man went knocking from door to door asking for food, for warmth, for help. His pleas for help went unanswered. The townspeople were rude. They shut the door in his face. They told him to get lost, to go away. That was until Doña Panchita opened her door for him. The old man hadn't even finished knocking when she was already inviting him inside to celebrate with the entire family. She gave him food, a blanket, a warm cup of coffee, and warmer clothes. After some time, the old man thanked her and went on his way. Everything was fine until the moment the elderly man set foot outside of El Pueblo, the small town. It was then that a giant red X appeared on the doors of every single person that had ignored his pleas for help. Soon, the red X turned into fire and every house that had been marked with an X was engulfed in flames. The old man turned around and walked back into town. As he walked, he laughed and laughed and laughed until horns grew from his head. The townspeople stared in horror and screamed as they watched the old man, the same old man that they had ignored, turn into the devil himself. The devil walked through the town as it went up in flames. Hands reached out from underneath him as he walked and began to drag people down to hell. From her house, Doña Panchita and her family could only stare as the town burned and their neighbors disappeared. Once the flames and the devil were gone and Panchita could leave her house, she went to the place where the old man was sitting before the carnage began and there she found someone she was not expecting to find. She saw her deceased husband. Her husband said to her, Continue helping those in need and this family will not suffer as the rest of the townspeople suffered. 
For the devil will wander on this day, looking for souls to take. So this holiday season, and well, every day, dear listener, treat all with kindness, for you never know who might be watching you. Okay, now I'm wondering if it's Santa or Satanas who's watching us and putting us on not your nice list for Christmas. Mm, I don't know. Either way, next up we have Alex from Weird Distractions Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Alex here from Weird Distractions Podcast, and I am excited to bring you a little bit of a haunted holiday story. When it comes to reportedly haunted locations across North America, many probably don't have a Christmas connection quite like the one at Rolling Hills Asylum. Rolling Hills Asylum, originally named the Genesee Poorhouse, is located in East Bethany, New York, within the United States. Resources claim it was built in 1827. The Poor House was built to provide housing and supports for individuals experiencing mental illnesses, cognitive or physical disorders, addictions, homelessness, and more. The facility would even house criminals who were not deemed fit to stay in trial or were deemed not criminally responsible. It seemed like Rolling Hills became a hot point for people in society who needed additional assistance or, sadly, for those that the rest of society, without these diagnoses or conditions, no longer wanted to have to deal with. Rolling Hills had many faces, names, and histories come in and out for almost 150 years. In the 1950s, Rolling Hills shifted into a nursing home until it officially closed in 1974 due to code issues, which treatment at Rolling Hills, like many institutions like it, has always been under scrutiny. Lack of resources, funding, staffing, and proper human care education were huge factors which led to the mistreatment of folks residing at Rolling Hills. Supposedly, there have been over 17,000 deaths within Rolling Hills, but this has been questioned as documentation by previous owners has always been spotty. Because of its long-standing history and alleged accounts of what happened behind closed doors, many believe that Rolling Hills is haunted. In fact, many claim it is one of the most haunted places in the United States. Which brings me to discuss the little creepy jingle I wanted to share with you all today. Within Rolling Hills lies the Christmas room. Specifically located in the basement, this room was once decorated for the children in order to celebrate the Christmas holidays, and the decorations have seemingly stuck for many, many seasons. But this room appears to bring more fear than cheer. It is said that now toys left within the room allegedly move by themselves without any explanation behind it. For example, there is a rocking horse in this room that reportedly rocks on its own. Cold spots have also been reportedly felt, and there is also a sense of being watched within the Christmas room. When Shane and Ryan from the hit YouTube series BuzzFeed Unsolved went to investigate Rolling Hills, they decided to put a trigger object in the room to test the paranormal activity. They brought a black and white plush toy dog, which was equipped to measure static energy around it. How it works is that the closer you get to it, its nose lights up and makes a noise. When Ryan and Shane left the room, there was a video recording of the dog toy with its nose lighting up a couple of times, kind of in short blips, even though there was no one in the room and no one seen physically touching the dog. In looking for experiences within this room documented online, I came across an experience taken from the Rolling Hills Asylum website that I wanted to share. It's from May 22nd, 2010, written by Kurt Philpack, and it reads... Three years ago, myself and my two friends, Bobby and Tommy, were in the Christmas room doing EVPs, and upon review, we came across this EVP, which I believe says, kill them. On May 22nd, 2010, I was in the Christmas room in the basement where I was using my K2 meter and digital recorder, just asking random questions. I was getting some answers, such as bangs and little noises here and there, but what I caught on my digital recorder is unexplainable. This really sounds like a small male child repeating what I had just said, and I was the only male in this room, let alone in the whole basement area. You'll hear me say, oh, thank you, because after asking for a noise, we got a response with a noise. Then you will hear a small child. This is extremely clear, but headphones always help. 
A room once made to provide cheer to those in need seemingly now has a dark twist to it. But is it really haunted? Or is it maybe the holiday spirit bringing the Christmas joy to life? I'll let you be the judge, listener. In the meantime, if you need a distraction, I got you. Happy holidays. Today's feature wouldn't be made possible without the following resources. The Grave Talks podcast, the Rolling Hills Asylum website, the YouTube video by BuzzFeed Unsolved titled The Shadowy Spirits of Rolling Hills Asylum, the World's Most Haunted Hospitals book by Richard Estep, the Weird New Jersey website, the Ghost Adventures episode season four, episode two, Haunted History Trail of New York State website, and finally, NYC Ghost website. Well, I don't know that you'd catch me in that Christmas room. I'm going to stay in my living room around this warm campfire, drink a fecito, and listen to Sydney from Beyond the Gravestone. Hi, I'm Sydney from Beyond the Gravestone, and this is my personal ghost story. So this was earlier this year. I was doing some volunteer work at this place called Heritage Square Museum. The museum is a indoor-outdoor museum and they rescue old homes from around the area. Me and the executive director went into this old Victorian home, the Hill House, and we were doing some paranormal investigating. At first, we didn't get that much information, and then we went into the kitchen, and Corey was like, I'm not going to tell you anything about this. And I was like, um, okay. So Corey was like, okay, so we basically kind of had, like, a psychic come over, And they were, like, saying something about the pantry. And I was like, the pantry? Okay. And I got this vision of this little girl. She was, like, choking in it. She was, like, holding her neck. And she had, like, blonde hair. She was in this nightgown. And it was, it kind of was, like, you know how you, like, go out and you're hungry in the middle of the night, like, and go sneak for food or something? That's what it felt like, like, just going to get food and she choked on it and there was no one to help her. I tell Corey about it and she says a psychic came over and said that she felt someone strangling or like choking and I was like okay well that's freaky now that I just saw that vision. I go and look into the pantry because it had this little window on the door and it looks exactly the way I saw it. It had a little window in it and the shelves were exactly the same, like it, the same length. It Just everything was the same. It was crazy. I found out later that it was a boarding house. And so she could have been one of the girls or someone there. And there's a lot of like ghost children reported there. So it, one of them could have been her. Okay, there's just something about ghost children that's extra creepy. And I think you would agree with me. That one was scary. Up next, we have spine chillers and serial killers. And welcome to Spine Chillers and Serial Killers. We are a weekly comedy, true crime, paranormal podcast. Not three words you tend to put together, but somehow we did it. I'm Emma. I'm Becky. And I'm Tash. Hello. Hello. Usually we do two stories per episode, one paranormal and one true crime. But for this Christmas collaboration with our fellow spooky podcasters, we're just going to stick with the paranormal side. Because who doesn't love a ghost story at Christmas? Charles Dickens certainly did. That he did. So get cosy and enjoy the story of Flight 401. Twas the night before Christmas. Was it though? <laughs> no. 
That's not how this starts, although it would be more joyful to start the story. Was no creature stirring, not even a mouse? Not even a mouse. Sadly, our story starts with a plane crash. (laughs) Joyous. In December 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 crashed into the Florida Everglades. The crew had not realised that the autopilot wasn't working and they began to decline and eventually crashed. 75 people survived, but 101 sadly were killed. Oh my God. Of those who lost their lives was Captain Robert Loft, called Bob for short, and flight engineer Donald Repo, called Don. A few days after the crash, the airplane was retrieved and some of the parts, including a galley, were salvaged and put onto other airplanes of the Eastern Airlines fleet, which, to be honest, that just... What? Is that a thing? Do we do that? I'm not sure how I feel about that. But that said, you can go to, like, a car place, can't you? A breaker's yard. A breaker's yard and get stuff. And I guess you don't know what's happened with those cars, do you? Yeah, but you don't plummet out the sky if it breaks down. (laughs) You just kind of pootle to the side of the road. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I've got a horrible fear of flying and, yeah, that's just intensified it, knowing that they can salvage parts (laughs) from plane crashes. Yeah, it's not the one, is it? It, It's not. It's not. But they did. And it was after these salvaged parts had been retrieved that people began seeing Bob and Don's ghosts wandering in the aisle, cockpit and galley, in the new plane with the salvaged parts. As if they were attached to the plane they crashed in somehow. Ooh. Bum, bum, bum. That's creepy, isn't it? Gets creepier. So the first sight was of Bob the captain. He was seen by the vice president of Eastern Airlines when he boarded a flight from New York. He chatted to the pilot and never thought anything of it until he realised a few days later that the pilot he'd been chatting to was no other than Captain Robert Loft. Oh my God, so he was like proper there, not just like... Yeah, not like see-through and floating and being all ghostly. He was there. Wow. No corner of your eye, suddenly disappear. He was... He was there. Conversation ghost. Exactly. The second apparition happened to a senior flight attendant. They had noticed a man in a pilot's uniform sat in a seat in first class. The man was unresponsive and just looked very dazed and confused as he stared into nothing. Worried by this behaviour, the flight attendant fetched the plane's captain and he was the one that recognised the passenger as Robert Loft. Oh my God. How do you react to that though? Like, Like... Oh, what are you meant to do? Get him a blanket? Like, (laughs) (laughs) I bet he is a bit chilly, to be fair. Yeah. So the third apparition was Robert again. And this one would have made me poo my pants. Not going to lie. A flight attendant opened an overhead locker only to be met with Bob's ghostly face peering back at them. (laughs) Oh, oh my God! God. Say, no. <laughs> like the grudge, <laughs> awful. Oh. Don appeared also three times. Firstly, just his face as a reflection in the oven on the plane. The flight attendant couldn't believe what they were seeing and called two of their colleagues to come and look. All three of them saw Don's face, and then he spoke. "Watch out for fire on this plane," he said. And sure enough, an engine failed. And the engine had to be shut down before it caught fire. Another flight attendant saw Don fixing the oven and she didn't think anything of it at the time. But when she later asked the actual flight engineer if the oven was okay, he had no idea what she was talking about. He said that he hadn't fixed it and it didn't need fixing. Had Don noticed a fault that no one else had and fixed it before it caused any problems? Or was he just repeating things he had done so many times during his time alive? What do you think? I mean, he loves an oven, doesn't he? (laughs) He's obsessed with that oven. (laughs) Don, the oven guy. One day, as the crew were together discussing engineering, to their surprise, and I'm sure terror, Don appeared and told them that the plane had a faulty electrical circuit. And then he vanished. They checked the circuit and sure enough, it needed replacing. He knows his stuff, does Don. Don is a man in the know. Captain Robert Loft was seen doing all the pre-flight checks and he even told the ground staff that all was okay and ready to go. 
They were confused as the pilot hadn't yet boarded when he learned that people had seen the pilot fitting Bob's description in the cockpit. He was so freaked out that he cancelled the flight. Another captain was preparing for his flight when he heard loud bangs from the floor below. When he opened the trapdoor, he saw Don, who then promptly vanished. Intrigued, the pilot went for a better look and he found a serious problem that would have no doubt caused the plane to crash. What are all these frigging problems? It's this flight. Don't fly with this airline. <laughs> I think the lesson here is don't salvage bits off a plane crash. Yeah. Especially haunted ones. Definitely not the haunted ones. All of these sightings were reported to the CEO of Eastern Airlines who dismissed the claims and warned the crew not to talk to anyone about them anymore. Before then, the crew had been writing everything in the plane's logbook that then mysteriously disappeared. The parts that were salvaged from flight 401 were removed and Bob and Don were never seen again. <gasps> da da Dun, dun, dun. That's creeped me out in so many ways, actually. Oh, I just will never be flying with Eastern Airlines because there were a lot of issues with those planes. Yeah. Well, mostly the oven, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The biggest risk was cold food. Anyway, thanks so much for listening to our story. I hope you were spooked during this special episode. Thank you so much to Eric from the Dos Spookuenos podcast for putting this all together. Stay a spooky. Thank you so much for listening to our very spooky Christmas special. We hope to make this an annual tradition. So if you are another podcaster that talks about spooky stuff and you want to do this next year, let us know. Contact us. Contact us. If you enjoyed the show, make sure that you go and listen to all the other shows that are on here. Give them a like. Give them a follow. You know what to do. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy spookmas. Stay spooky. Peace.